some affinity to a lot of his posts, which are both uh, local uh, oriented, a lot of, uh, you know, to do with uh, rent control, housing, uh, poverty issues, and, and global, um, looking beyond uh, the Hudson River and so forth, uh, as per that Steinberg uh, cartoon, um, and, and, and talking about, you know, things like uh, electronic vehicles, uh, um, global warming, uh, the backing up of, of same, uh, climate change, whatever you want to call it, and many other topics. So, um, um, Buddy, as, as he's known to his friends of, of 10 minutes and more, um, is uh, uh, an interesting mind, uh, not only Yale, but I believe Harvard Law School, and he practiced uh, litigation. But I'm going to let him explain himself a little bit better than I possibly can. Um, and so why don't you take it away? Uh, okay. Well, you, you, I don't have a very complicated biography, and I think you gave most of it. So you mentioned but where I went to school, I then I then started as an associate with a large law firm in New York in 1975, and uh, four, uh, nine years after that, I became a partner there, and another 31 years, total of 40, I retired from the same job. So it's the only real job I ever had. I retired in at the end of 2015, and I had already started a blog uh, at that time, kind of in anticipation of retirement. I um, kind of cranked it up some after retiring, and now it's seven years on from there. I do do some other things. I serve on some boards, uh, both nonprofit and for-profit. I um, <clears throat> sing in a choir and, and other such activities for uh, a, a person of my sort. I live in Manhattan, which is a very, I think you might think of it as an amusement park for adults. So it's, it's a nice place to live. It does suffer from groupthink, no question about it. But however, I, I would tell you that there is, there's a high population density. So there's a critical mass of non-group thinkers in Manhattan. And uh, you can, you can become part of that crowd if you want to be. So I, I, I am part of that crowd. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's my life story. Yeah. So I, you know, we, we, we have similar things here up in Boston. Uh, it's, you know, I'm in the same kind of uh, blue think. And, uh, you know, uh, even despite Groucho Marx's uh, admonition of never joining any club that would take him as a member, I, I have a few, you know, civic uh, groups as well. And uh, um, I, I, I noticed also that, um, you know, things have kind of shaken out on our friend network, which hadn't been such um, politically divided. Uh, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of a political schism based on uh, your Covidianism, uh, which is uh, uh, the branch Covidians. I don't remember that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that well, I hear you use that term, but it, yes, I definitely have uh, gotten some people mad at me in, uh, around here. And these wouldn't be my friends, but I, I think the wearing of masks is ridiculous. I think the hiding in your house is ridiculous. And so I've been going out and about and not wearing a mask and taking the subway and so forth for a long time. Yeah. And there were, there, there was a lot of, there was some pushback against that. Yeah. It's a funny thing. Uh, speaking of Manhattan and in a sense skyscrapers, there was a Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, he's from Queens, uh, which I think technically part of New York city, uh, just like the Bronx where we're kind of interlopers. Um, he had a, a, a routine, um, said, you know, the, the, these uh, mirrored, mirrored glass 
uh, skyscrapers, they presented problems because birds were hitting them and, and dropping dead, you know, mm -hmm. from high height, so forth. They hit them, get stunned, boom, they collapse and go to the ground. And he's, and he's thinking in terms of the bird, he says, look, I get it. You know, they're, they're flying along and they see sky, just like behind them, they see sky ahead of them. All well and good. He said, but wouldn't you, if you're the bird, wouldn't you want to avoid that bird who's coming right at you? Um, and so it's just kind of this little common sense thing. It's like, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, I, you know, birds have the excuse that most of them, aside from owls and what, and hawks, aside from the predator birds, they have their eyes on the side of the head. So I get it. So when they're flying along, they're probably just looking at everybody else rather than looking ahead. And they, they may not go straight into the building. I don't, I, I've never observed it happening directly, but they yeah, may. Well, presumably, presumably, presumably they're just flying along and not paying attention. They don't have uh, Tesla's, uh, you know, uh, full self-driving mechanism, whatever. So they wind up hitting the thing. They don't have object uh, or, or bat uh, echolocation. But the point here is I give the birds, you know, a lot of slack because they are, have their eyes on the side of the head and they're birds. But, you know, people, I, I just, I always wonder, it's like, you know, just like the bird thing, it's like I have people in my congregation, religious congregation now, you know, still wearing masks, except during like the luncheon, you know, or, or if we have an event. So, so they're doing it here, but not there. The same circumstance, the same density of people. And mind you, it's face to face at, at the luncheon. And, and then they're not wearing masks. And, and so I, and I, I just keep wondering about asking, you know, aren't you curious how we're in all how the rest of us haven't just dropped dead? Like you're you're wearing this thing, but we're all we somehow survived this zombie apocalypse, you know, unmasked, and 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 yet we're here still here to talk about it. I mean, I just I just um, I don't know if the bird analogy uh, you know rings true here, but it just seems to me like you know, okay, fine, I, I get it, you're flying along, but wouldn't you notice that that everybody else is not dropping dead? I, I don't know. <laughs> um. um. Yes, well, early on in the, I, I'm a regular subway rider here. I don't know if if uh, if you are, but you know the ridership on the subway dropped way down. But mm -hmm. for a long time, they they had a supposed mask mandate on the subway, and mm -hmm. at some point, at some point, I decided, well, this is completely absurd. I'm just going to try not wearing it and see what happens. And I think in the course of more than a year, while they still had the mask mandate in effect, I once got some pushback from one passenger. Uh, I never got any pushback from any of the MTA employees. The, the conductors and the station personnel all dutifully wore masks, but remarkably the, the category of people who didn't was the police <laughs> and when I saw police not wearing masks, which was more than once in a while, I would go over to them and thank them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's actually helpful to police work. I mean, I think we saw this coincident. With it can't many, be. It's got to be terrible for them. Well, not just not just they're wearing it, but the fact that that people whom they're observing are, are wearing it. And, and let's say 99.3% of the people they're observing are wonderful people who have no criminal intent. But the, the, those who do, um, it, it's 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 like it's almost like a, a, a you know a dream come true to, ha to have this concept that you will be keeping your mask on going into banks, going into stores, um, you know theoretically you know, doing some nefarious activities. And I, I think the 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 2020 riots were augmented by this you know mass masking. Uh, 
and and the fact that people could just you know you wouldn't stand out walking down the street after maybe you've taken something or whatever wearing a mask we wouldn't be able to say oh that's the band you know there's the band you know the prototypical bandit for us was a, a guy with a mask and it's like if you're wearing a mask you're trying to hide your face and so th this was like um it's like a gold rush almost and figuratively or even literally in some cases was just that it's just kind of a, a, a i just think be a lot of pressure on police work on top of all of the extra pressure that the the augmented riots brought on them um and it, it, it you know it it's the closest I think we've had to, you know, real societal, um, I, I guess, disappearance of the social compact. Nuts. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's more succinct. <laughs> the doctor who removed that wart on my face yesterday wore a mask and insisted that I wear a mask. So there yeah. you go. It's not completely gone yet. No, it's not. And I mean, in certain states, just to be fair to your doctor, um, I looked this rule up, and I've mentioned this on some of my other um, video casts. Um, there are, I think, five uh, scientifically-minded states that require masks in out all outpatient settings for any outpatient problems. And I believe they are uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, Washington State are those five, if I have the number right. And there's a couple others that have it under, you know, asterisk circumstances, every, you know, all these people, but not these people, so forth. And so California is pretty close to that and so forth that, that you know, again, like the bird, um, wouldn't they, wouldn't they notice other states don't have people dropping dead? You know, we have not been able to do true experimentation in a, in a kind of like a, you know, a lab rat kind of way with COVID and masks and PPI and all these measures, but we have had population experiments where different localities, different um, states, different you know, legal entities, countries, and so forth have done different things and had had either the same or different results based on same. And so, you know, it, it just seems to me that that you know the, the states that do this, they just don't stop. I've written to um, you know the secretary of uh, whatever it is, health and welfare in, in Massachusetts, and the governor, and so forth, about you know, is it time to do this? And we've just went through a different governor, so I've written to the past one, the present one about, you know, can we like stop this? I mean, I understand if you got a cold or you're sick or you're immunocompromised, so fine. People are going to be much, you know, more likely to put masks on today than they were, say, five years ago, even with the same problems. People were not dropping dead, you know, for want of masks five years ago, and they won't five days from now or five months from now or five years from now either. I think we're pretty much in the same, you know, kind of uh, homeostatic situation where there are some cold viruses, there are some flu viruses, there are this and that, and people do get sick, people do, with all the same stipulations as before. And and I don't think masks make, much, you know, one lick of difference either way. In fact, you know, I think we have a slightly higher death rate now because of, you know, a lot of the disease of despair, um, heroin addictions up, um, heroin deaths are down, fentanyl, uh, excuse me, heroin deaths are up, fentanyl deaths are up, et cetera, all those kinds of things. Um, and I don't think masking and and pretty much the anomie, the the namelessness or facelessness that people have in in their medical interactions is is helping it. Um, on my end, it doesn't help me to uh, diagnose people because I think it's not just the, the complaints that people come in for if they have a, a wrist problem or 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 an elbow problem or heart problem, whatever. You know, there there are other times you can kind of sense there's something else going on, but you can I think you have a much harder time doing that without facial. ID without facial 
Empathy. What, what is your specialty of? Uh, I, 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 I'm primary care general medical practice. I'm, I, I have been full time for, for decades and now I'm doing part time. Okay. Well, um, well, I leave it up to you, but do you want to move on to some? Yes, absolutely. So let's, let's, that's, that's kind of table setting. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about Lord Moncton and, uh, um, his theory and yours. This is a recent post. I'm going to let you frame it. Okay, I'll frame it. But this is a, a little bit technical and um, mathematical, and, and I, I'll try to keep it fairly simple. I don't know the, the details of what your audience is, but Moncton is a British guy. He's a, a, a noted climate skeptic. I think he's getting on in years a little bit, maybe even more so than I am. And, um, and he uh, writes a lot of stuff, and he's a frequent poster at a site called What's Up With That, which is, I believe, the most read of the various mm -hmm. climate blogs, either alarmist or skeptic, although it is, it is a skeptic side blog, and it's an aggregator of content. So they mm -hmm. publish my things and his things and many others. And he wrote a post over there that was published at What's Up With That not that long ago, like... Uh, just about a week ago today. And the headline was the last, the final nail in the coffin of net zero, I believe. That's close to it anyway. And the, the uh, gist of it was he had been studying the work of a guy named Pollock and Pollock had come up with what uh, Moncton said was a proof. Now, I guess he, he started with saying, you'll take these countries like the UK, Germany, <clears throat> maybe California, other places that think they can replace their coal and natural gas power plants with wind and solar. And they build some wind and solar and they build some more and they build some more. But somehow they get to a level of wind and solar of around 30%, 25-30%, and they don't seem to be able to get past that. And maybe they keep building more, but somehow the level, the penetration of electricity generated by the wind and solar into the grid stalls out at around 30 or 35%. And Monted said, well, now we know why, because this guy Pollock has come up with a mathematical proof that it can't actually go past that. Um, and he lays out this proof. And so I studied that proof and I don't think I mentioned to you, I actually was a math major back in my days at Yale. And although I, I dabble in math in my own blog posts, I really stick to arithmetic because I know how easy it is to go wrong when you start pretending to be a professional mathematician and you're not. Mm -hmm. uh, but so Moncton laid out this proof, which is, which is assume this variable means this and that variable means that and X, Y, and Z, and therefore this and therefore that. And he comes to the conclusion that no matter how much wind and solar you build, you'll never get past their average, uh, uh, the, the amount of electricity that they generate going into the grid will never, as a percent of the total electricity, will never get past their capacity factor on an annualized basis. Now that's a technical word, but what, if you think about it this way, if you put up a wind turbine, 
it generates electricity when the wind blows, not when it doesn't. So you put up a wind turbine and let's say it has a capacity of one megawatt. That's how much it can produce instantaneously when the wind is blowing at full strength. It produces one megawatt. Well, if you have a coal plant with a capacity of one megawatt and you turn it on for the whole year, you'll get close to almost a 100% capacity factor. So you'll produce one megawatt hour for every hour of the year, mm -hmm. 8,760 megawatt hours in a year. That's how many hours in a year? Uh, 25 times, 24 times 365, 8,760. If you have a wind turbine with a one megawatt capacity, you'll only get about a third of that because the wind either doesn't blow at all or, or blows lightly or even blows so heavy you have to turn the wind turbine off to keep from damaging it. So between all those things, you'll get about one third. So instead of 8,760, you'll get around 2,900. Yeah, basically they're like good baseball players. They only, they only get a hit 30% of the time. There you go. That's a very good baseball player, and it's also a very good uh, wind turbine. Right. It works about a third of the time. So Moncton, derived from this guy Pollock, says get, build a one megawatt wind, wind turbine. You'll get about one third of its capacity over the year. It doesn't matter how many of them you build. You will never be able to get one, more than one third of your electricity total from wind turbines, no matter how many you build. And he puts forth a mathematical proof, like the kind of proofs you might have seen if you ever took a calculus or, or some kind of advanced math. Well, I looked at this and I said, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 he's right that the, co the, co the countries and the states that keep building more wind turbines never get much beyond 30 or 35%. But I don't think his proof is correct. In fact, I think his proof assumed the answer. The answer was in the assumptions. Mm -hmm. And and if you think about it, uh, you'll realize that his proof can't be right because you can exceed that limit by what I called overbuilding. Mm -hmm. So that if you have a jurisdiction, a state or a city that uses an average of one megawatt of power and you build one megawatt of wind turbines, you'll only get a third of your electricity from the wind turbines. But if you build two megawatts of wind turbines, you'll get more than a third of your electricity right. from the wind turbines. You will not get two thirds of your electricity from the wind turbines. Why is that? Because sometimes you're going to have excess. Right. When, you build, when you build two megawatts of wind turbines, you're going to have excess and you'll have to throw it away. But if there are other times when the wind was only blowing at one half strength, and you build twice as many wind turbines as your average usage, well, in the times of half strength of the wind, you're not going to get all your electricity from the wind. So you will have some times when you get all your electricity from the wind when you couldn't have with just one megawatt of wind turbine. And obviously there are going to be some doldrums where you get, you know, 10%. Of there, not even. There are doldrums where you get zero. And it doesn't matter if you build a million wind turbines, you're still right. going to zero right and it's just, just like your point about this, the solar panels um I, I you know there is this thing called nighttime um where there's uh you know i suppose the moon reflects some solar uh if the moon is up 
whatever, but you're not going to get much solar uh, in the middle of the night. If it isn't zero, it's almost zero. It's, it's zero for all practical purposes. And the result of that, I said that wind turbines, wind turbines in good locations can, can have annual capacity factors of over 30%. And there are even some that claim over 40%, although I'm a little dubious, but 35 and 37 for the latest wind turbines and the best locations is even possible. Solar, there's almost no such thing as solar that can get above 25% because you start with um, night and you're already at 50%. Right. And, and then you may not, you may or may not know or realize this, but the first two hours in the morning and the last two hours at night uh, in, in the evening when the sun is still up, but it's very low in the sky. And those also have very low. Yeah. And there's also, also the fact that, you know, good preponderance of the, of the, the political uh, need for this is in the, um, you know, is in Europe, which is, you know, as warm as, you know, Italy might be, it's only on a, on a latitude as same as New York. And, and a lot of these things are up at the latitude of Labrador and whatnot. I think. Um, and so, when they need the energy the most, say, is in the winter, and they're getting a zilch. Uh, I think that's not and then you have, I mean, two of the cloudiest countries in the world are are England and Germany, and so the wind, the, the solar panels in England and Germany on an annual basis produce about ten percent of their annualized capacity. Some of the ones in California, in the deserts in California get about 25% and maybe even a little more. I don't think I've ever seen anything hit 30. I remember but, when this was, was this was coming into vogue in the US, you know, I kept positing, uh, there were all these, you know, solar credits for Massachusetts and I assume elsewhere, uh, Northeast, whatever you put a solar. And so I've got neighbors, I'm actually staring at some, you know, who've cut down all their trees so they could put um, solar panels on their homes and get good uh, juice from the solar panel. And it's kind of a weird thing because obviously they put air conditioners in because the trees are down. So in the summer, it gets really, really hot and they don't have the, the trees shading nor the evaporative kind of cooling effect uh, that trees provide uh, from, you know, their um, water os osmotic, whatever. Um, and so it's a hotter place without the trees and they have the solar panels up. <laughs> anyway, it's just kind of um, a funny thing. And but. You know, leaving that aside, just having solar panels at all, um, putting them up here, if you had a certain number of solar panels, let's say you had a finite number of solar panels for the United States, um, I would put them all in Arizona, you know, and then, you know, figure out a capacitance method so that you, you know, if they were attached to a uh, hydrolysis um, a factory where you'd uh, take water and turn it into um hydrogen and oxygen, and then transport that hydrogen to Massachusetts, I think you'd probably, you know, ultimately do better if you could, you know, make a pipeline or some, some thing that you, you know, if you had a, a, a currency, I think what's missing in all this is the capacitance aspect. And I'm wondering, you know, I mean, the, all, all these equations, you know, yes, you're, I think you're right. And you wind up with Zeno's paradox in a sense, or not quite, you kind of like wind up with an asymptotic um, approach. You can never reach hundred percent, even if you had like a, a million of these, because there is sunlight and daylight, excuse me, nighttime, and there's doldrums and so forth. But if you had a, a bulwark, like a, you know, basically electrical panels and so forth, you theoretically get to offload it to that and then buffer 
yourself, just like a you know capacitance circuit? Well, uh, there are there are different approaches approaches to it. If if you if you are interested in exploring this deeply, there is a guy named Ken Gregory who is a retired engineer. By the way, everybody who does any work that's worth anything in this is retired and unpaid. Because if you're actually working and paid and you need the money, you're getting it from the government and you're not allowed to dissent. But yeah. so retired- That's an interesting thing all by itself. That's, I think, it, right. same, thing, same thing happened with a lot of the COVID stuff. People, right. as, as a sidelight, that, that, that whole line, 97% of scientists agree, X, you always hear this about climate, 97%, you know, the consensus, 97% of scientists, well, I, I, now we know why. After COVID, it's very easy to see why. People do not want to, you know, stick their necks out. I'm, I'm well, you, you, in order to get into the field, you will basically have to sign a loyalty oath. I mean, I'm saying that figuratively, but mm -hmm. you're not welcome as a, as a scientist in the field, and you certainly will never get a grant unless you uh, exhibit uh, adherence and loyalty to the party line. Well, it's the same thing in this climate thing. So the people, and, and to, to Moncton's credit, he is one of these retired, unpaid guys. Uh, but unfortunately, I thought this particular piece of work was flawed, but a piece, a piece of work that I think is not flawed is a big piece of work done by a guy named Ken Gregory, who is a retired engineer who lives in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, but he did a, a spreadsheet for the United States where he downloaded hourly uh, electricity usage demand data and also hourly production data from the existing wind and solar facilities. And then he, 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 with a spreadsheet, hour by hour throughout the whole year, you can do things like you, you can say, uh, if, if, for example, I take the amount of wind and solar that we now have, which produces at the maximum well less than the usage. It, the amount of wind and solar we currently have in the United States does not have a capacity level equal to the level of usage in the United States. But you can just take it and say, well, it produces one quarter. At, 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 it, when it's fully producing, it would produce one quarter of the usage. So just assume you, you multiplied it by four, you built four times as much, then it would build, then it would produce 100% of the usage at certain times, never more. And you could, you could then answer questions like, well, what percent of the um, usage would it provide over the year? And you could see that you would hit that limit. The wind will never get above 35%. The solar will never get above 20%. So if you, if you build these things up to about four times where they are now, you'd get something like 25 or 28% of your electricity from the wind and solar. Well, could could you get more by overbuilding? Uh, yes, so you could overbuild the wind and solar, and then you'd have a lot to throw away. But you'd get more and more. But you'd gradually, you don't approach a limit. Maybe, yeah. Well, you asymptotically, you can get you can get closer and closer to a hundred percent of your electricity by overbuilding. But you'll never get a hundred percent. But so, if, does, does Germany enormously expensive? Does Germany have any type of conversion for the overage? I, I know you mentioned they ship it off to Poland, um, which is uh, kind of a nicer 
uh, attitude towards Poland than they exhibited uh, <laughs> the last time. <laughs> uh, yeah, the last time, um, you know, the what is it, the Ribbentrop Molotov um, uh, deal. <laughs> I mean, there, there's, I mean, the jokes almost write themselves. Um, just as a sidelight, I, when I, I was, uh, you know, watching, I, I guess they've been blessed with a much wild, milder, not wilder, but milder winter than anticipated. So that could end cool. any day. Um, but at a certain point last fall, people were, you know, as I termed it, they were uh, chopping, well, basically they were in the Black Forest chopping down trees for firewood because it's going to be needed. So I was thinking they were uh, making the Black Forest brown in order to stay green. Um, and and they were uh, going to have these, um, I, I, they were going to have these, they were going to warehouse people, um, you know, in, with warming stations. So they were going to mandate that people leave their homes and go to these concentration uh, uh, lager, you know, lagers of warehouse, um, and uh, and forcibly stay there for their for their own good. Um, I, I that just uh, I don't know. I, I couldn't think of any prior examples of that in history, so I was left at a blank. But you know, the, the ironies are are kind of weird. Um, you know, there, there's this. It's almost like a mystic a mysticism about it because at the same time they had closed their nuclear plants which I think is, you know, really the crux of all this issue. I don't think there's anything greener than nuclear. I mean, they're, they're you know, I, I, I'm not I, even just stipulating all their carbon stuff is, is true. If you ask actually people about carbon dioxide, all the all my climate-ish friends, I say, well, what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide? They're like, you know, I don't know, 5 10%, whatever. I mean, they're off by like two orders of magnitude. And, but, but, but let's say they're completely right about, you know, carbon. Um, you know, you have you have nuclear already. It's like uh, I, I I think that nuclear, if you pe spe spent this time and attention and tax crediting uh, towards nuclear that you're you're doing on solar um, and wind and so forth, you'd have something that clearly can up, be up and running. You know, 24, 25 hours a day, um, not only seven, but maybe even ten days a week. Uh, well, um, nuclear basically, yes, you you turn it on. And, and it needs to be refueled about once every couple of years. And you, you don't turn it off or turn it up or down uh, until it needs refueling, which is a couple of years out. So they're an extremely steady source of power. In fact, it's, I think, something of a problem that they're, they're not easy to turn up or down. I've, I've heard that they have new models that may be possible to crank up and down somewhat, but not to the extent. Yeah, well, you're dealing with rocks, basically. You know, it's, it's rocks don't have that many, you know, switches. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're interesting rocks, but that's what they are. They're, they're, they're yeah. or metallic rocks, whatever you want to call it. Um, metal rods, I guess, but, um, and rocks maybe is not the right term. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's, I read someplace. I, I, sh I really I should have attributed it at the time, but it's it's not so much that the the green or the left or so forth. It's not that they don't like this fuel or that fuel. It's they don't like any fuel that's possible. And I think the real end game is. I mean, you, you've seen some veering away, not necessarily this instant, but some veering away from the the um, turbine because they're killing the birds. Getting back to my bird analogy, um, mm -hmm. and and it's whatever. And then the solar panels. Well, we we're mining stuff. And it's from China, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, whatever it gets feasible is what they're against. I, I think it's kind of just 
you know, the idea of cheap energy and being able to do the things that we want that are, you know, non-Luddite. Um, I think that's, you know, so the, anyway, the, the, the pithy phrase that I read at the time was that, that it's not they're against, against this type of energy or whether it's coal or nuclear or whatever. They're against anything that is actually workable and feasible and, and progressive in the sense of progressing society, not in the progressive sense of politically. So, so I have an about page here on my blog, which I, I wrote way back at the very beginning. But what, one of the things on there, so, so the, the point of my blog, the theme pushing back against, against Manhattan groupthink. But so I, I have a list of, of the uh, essential propositions of the Manhattan groupthink uh, here. And one of those that I have in my list is um, usage of energy is a human right, but all actual known methods of producing energy are environmentally unacceptable. Well, there you go. Maybe, maybe, maybe I was channeling uh, Francis Menton. Right. Um, but I don't think it was on your page, to, to be fair. No, I, I'm sure I'm not the first person to have thought of that. Yeah. But it's, it is, I mean, I just don't, I think it has to do with, um, kind of the the op opposite of William F. Buckley's, you know, definition of conservative as somebody um, standing in the middle, you know, of, of, of pro progress and yelling stop. I think I think it's exactly that, but in, in a slightly different way. The, you know, anything that he's thinking about, kind of political leftist progress, progressivism, which is maybe a misnomer, um, and they are working at any type of technological progress that, uh, you know, oddly enough has helped the poor, um, ostensibly whom they are, you know, operating for and on behalf has helped the poor become less so. You know, uh, I think you and I are, are you know, I, I don't know if you were alive during the Jurassic period as I was, or the Mesozoic. I think I was born in the Mesozoic, I forget. Um, but, you know, there was a time when there was, you know, genuine, you know, huge starvations amongst, you know, mass populace and, and people lived in rags and so forth. And, and now, you know, people travel to Thailand, to Vietnam, and so forth. I'm not saying those are paradises, but, you know, the places of genuine impoverishment are not quite as much anymore. Uh, to be clear, uh, I'm sure if you go to Kinshasa or, you know, other places, uh, you know, the Congo or whatever, um, that, that you'll find, you know, genuine poverty. And I think there's a lot of misery and there's a lot of uh, warfare and so forth. But we don't see quite the same level of mass famine. Uh, we have better distribution networks. We have you know, people communicating uh, that people can, you know, uh, kind of make, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the, you know, the, basically the tools of the computer, the tools of the cell phone, the tools of distribution have all gotten hugely better. And those are our methods and manners of progress um, in, in the strict sense. I mean, we, we see some holdouts, even in, in uh, our beloved Manhattan. Um, I can't remember what it was. I was reading just the other day, uh, a guy who's, I can't think which paper it was, but I think it was in New Yorker just recently. I think it was this issue in New Yorker with Martin Luther King family on the front. I was at the dentist's office. I don't read it anymore. I had a subscription for like 25 years. Read that, Greg. But I, I, I had a subscription for 25 years. My wife and I were just talking about it today. That I think the New Yorker used to be, you know, like the the gilly, you know, drawing, um, you know, kind of like an effete sensibility. And now it's 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 really geared somewhere else. But be that as it may. They're featuring a guy, uh, and I guess he does uh, some kind of uh, coaching, business coaching, whatever, but he's living raw um, in Manhattan. Basically, he's off the grid in Manhattan. And Manhattan is a grid, as you know. <laughs> it's basically laid out as a grid. 
So leaving that um, mega, you know, <laughs> kind of macro sense aside. A guy living off the grid in Manhattan. But, you know, I, I met a guy who contacted me through my blog who claimed to be doing that. I wonder if it's the same guy. Right. So I read this thing. He's living on the 11th floor. So this, he's off the grid in the sense that he takes the stairs. Yes. This is guy. Instead of the elevator. He invited me out to lunch. And, and so so if you do do lunch, just for the record, apparently, you know, showering is not quite a, apparently he lets water into the apartment, but he doesn't want to do hot water. He does everything that you and I do, but he has to go up to the roof to charge the things with this, solar. I, I'm yeah. telling you, it's 100 percent the same guy. Do you, do you do you remember the guy's name? No, it's in The New Yorker. OK, um, I believe his name is Lance Spodek and he lives in my neighborhood and he invited me out to lunch and I went to lunch with him. And then he invited me to another lunch. And I was like, you know, I have a limited uh, ability. Right, so so firsthand. So <laughs> is, is that living off the grid? I, I, I have no idea. I mean, he claimed to use no electricity in a Manhattan apartment. Yeah, but he's, he's blogging. He's on the computer. His business is on the computer. He's, he's Zooming with other people. He doesn't want to take airplanes, right? How did he so, do that? I, he had some. He might have a solar panel on the roof of his. Right. Building. So that, no, he doesn't. They won't let him have one. So he go. He marches up to the roof, and he had. He keeps some of them up there. And, and by the way, fifteen. He marches back down. He changes out the batteries. So he's living on the grid, except instead of getting the, his electricity through the solar panels, you know that that Germany has that puts into the grid, he's got his own little solar panel that he's not on a grid, but he's bringing. He's he's manually. He is personally his own grid. But it's, I, I, I would have thought that living off the grid is like chopping wood. And, and I have you know, a cousin who lives in Alaska, and she really is off the grid. That's another whole thing. And, yes, she chops wood to, um, to heat her log cabin. Right. And, um, but it, but it's, it's a weird thing. It's, it, inimically, this is actually not, um, this is not, any, this is not more carbon friendly. You know, the, the funny thing is, you know, people, this, there's a, uh, back in, you know, 20 years ago, everyone's like saying, oh, the United States, you know, per capita, we use so much more energy, blah, 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 than, you know, somebody in, in Pakistan or something like that. And and when the, and our farmers, you know, use let's, whatever the number is, eight times as much energy, um, as much gasoline as as Pakistanis or somebody in wherever, right. pick, pick the country. And and then if you, but if you, some, some guy did a critique of this, like, well, you know what, we're using gasoline because they're using donkeys. And, and a John Deere um, is not a physical deer. A physical deer is a lake awake and alive 24-7, just like the donkeys. And a John Deere, you have an ignition, and, and you can turn it off. So when it uses the fuel, it's using the fuel for a specific task. The donkey lives and breathes and mates and hangs out and gives milk and all this kind of stuff and breathes. And, 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 and the donkey is using fuel all the time. And when you use it, you're actually capturing waste. The small percentage of the of the food you put in, the food takes energy to get. So it's kind of this endless cycle. You're not getting ahead of yourself. You're just measuring in a different aspect. They included the fuel or the carbon fuel, all the the grains and whatnot that it took to get give the donkey, and all the energy it took to get that grain to give the donkey. They have a much higher carbon footprint than the John Deere, which is only awake, you know, a couple of hours of the day. And when he is awake, he's doing stuff. That's it. When when you turn the John Deere off, he has no physical needs. So, so this guy Spodek, who I'm 100% convinced is the same guy was in the New Yorker, because he's not, he's not nobody. And when, you know, I had lunch with him. I so I said, said you have a job? Or like, what do you do? He's a life coach for CEOs. 
Okay. Yeah, exactly. No, this is uh, the name does ring a bell. Now that you say it, I can see it. It's a life coach for CEOs. S P O D E K, I believe it was. I saw. I remember. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's that's kind of a funny coincidence. Now, um, but you're probably curious about this. Um, uh, poverty. We have a poverty rate in the United States, and you probably know the poverty rate, the poverty measure was created in the 60s, and they measured the poverty in the United States to be about, the poverty rate was decreed to be about 15% at the time. And in the intervening 50 plus years, it has wavered up and down. It's been as low as 10 point something, and, and it's been as high as about 17. And I think the latest round of it was 11 or 12. So it's barely gone down in 55 years, despite trillions upon trillions of dollars of spending. But my big question for you is, what do you think the poverty rate is in Manhattan? In Manhattan, it's 22%, okay, according to the Census Bureau. So Manhattan, which is the, the wealthiest county in the United States and, and the most expensive place to live, supposedly has a 22% poverty rate. So how could that possibly be? Well, and, and the answer is that that is done by handing out vast amounts of money or in-kind benefits and not counting them. So, and... And if you, if you, one of the people, there's a huge amount of subsidized housing in Manhattan. It's not mm -hmm. just rent regulated housing, but it's also subsidized programs of various sorts. New York City Housing Authority, low income housing, and this program and that program and the other program, the Mitchell Lama program, the limited income equity co-op program, and one program after another. And and a good 20% of the people in Manhattan live in one variety or another of those. And if you, if you just do some back of the envelope calculations, it costs the government to support a family in one of those buildings, an average of about a hundred thousand dollars a year. That's just for, just for the housing. And, and all of these people are counted as in poverty. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a funny thing. I'm sure if you actually looked at the, the tools um, used in those households of, of say 60 years ago and today, you'd see different, you know, I mean, if you took my little apartment in the Bronx, when we grew up and we were middle class, I'd say, although we were tight, as I mentioned, we were in a rent controlled apartment. Um, and so we didn't, we didn't move up or down. We kept it because we couldn't, but keep it. Yeah, make a lateral move. It's impossible so to make there, a There were five of us in a, a 1.5, bedroom apartment. So there was not a big place. Um, but, you know, the, the tools we had there, um, I think you find better items or instruments uh, of, of living in, in, a, in, you know, what's say, say poverty. I think I mean, we, you know, barely had TVs or black and white or tubes and so forth. You know, we didn't have any of the amenities. I mean, it, you know, there's, I suppose, a different metric of how well you're eating and whatnot. Um, but, um, you know, there, there's, I'm not, I'm not saying poverty is a, a walk in the park, but, you know, if you look at, at the life of royalty, you know, up until say a hundred years ago, I mean, most of the place we consider impoverished, you know, have, and I, again, I'm not trying to um, sound haughty here, but they have all the things that, that the royalty didn't have a hundred, you know, 150 years ago. They didn't, you know, the royalty then didn't have central 
heating. They didn't have central plumbing. Um, and those are, you know, we, we, we gloss over these things. They didn't have the medical care we have. And even though there's, you know, some inequities, whatever people like to point out in the, in the medical system, you know, on, from my end, you know, working in a hospital, you know, uh, decades ago and seeing patients through the, 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 the course, you know, I had a very kind of heavily Medicaid uh, poor population uh, through my medical practice. You know, people, you know, if you have a heart attack, you get treated for a heart attack. You know, I, we put, you know, not we, but grossly, uh, our medical groups put stents in everybody. You know, if you had a heart issue, it didn't seem to be segregated that way. And, and people live longer now than, than royalty did then. And so, you know, how people grade out poverty is, is a, an open question. And I'm sure there are people living, you know, hand to mouth in Manhattan. I mean, you know, there's, there's the, the rents are high. There, there are parts of Manhattan that I, I think, you know, most likely don't do well. And I know I've seen a lot of people, you know, living on the street and so forth. You know, so there's, there's going to be poverty everywhere, I think. I think there's some level to which you cannot get rid of it because some people don't necessarily want um, some of the things that, you know, they don't want to do some of the things that you need to do in order to accumulate an identity, a credit score, um, you know, credit cards, uh, a job, all that kind of stuff. A, re a remarkable number of people are impaired in one way or another, men mentally ill or, or um, mentally defective in one way or the other, or drug addicted or, or um, just, just impaired in one way or another. A remarkable number of people are. It's yeah. not one or two percent of the population like that. It's yeah, substantial number. Yeah, no, I and I, I saw a fair amount of that. I mean, you you try to help people, and and some people can be helped. Um, some people have had you know some emotional traumas and whatnot, and they're intellectually reasonably intact. And and some people are, you know, somewhat divorced from from the same. And when they're off, they're sort of off the grid, but off the mental grid, and off this. Kind of uh, scaffolding we have uh, societally. Um, people don't, you know, if you are poor per se, you know, we've had literally the most upwardly mobile society ever invented. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of, of Thomas uh, Sowell at uh, the Hoover Institute, uh, one of the great economists of our time. And, you know, he, he says he was poor, you know, and he had all, and he was a communist at the time, by the way, um, or sympathizing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he's tracked that, that people don't stay, you know, the, the, the guy working McDonald's, McDonald's doesn't stay there his whole life. I mean, some people do. You know, I think there are people for whom that job sweeping or something like that is what they can do. But for the most part, um, if you have the wherewithal and, and you don't have to be super literate. My grandparents were not. They came speaking uh, a different language and, you know, neither one went to, to even middle school. Uh, they had elementary school educations in Europe. And, you know, one became a carpenter, one became a store owner, business runner, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he knew enough to make more than he spent and did well, you know, house, car, um, you know, travel, Europe, all that kind of stuff, you know, ocean liners. And so, <laughs> and that's with like no education. I mean, there's, if you have the capability and the wherewithal, you know, I suppose the, the drive, uh, this is, you know, still a very capable place. I mean, I think we've made, you know, some uh, ways that uh, we make it harder, we make it gummier, um, partially by having these sinecures that seem as if charity, you know, subsidized housing, rent control, all that kind of stuff. But people wind up getting kind of gummed up a little bit because they don't want to give those things up. Uh, you know, it, it, it requires a disclosure. I mean, I, I 
I don't want to talk too much here, but uh, getting back to my patients, I had a lot of patients who were on a disability of one type or another. And mm -hmm. whether it was a real disability is another question. They were functional. They could do work, but they, they did not want to make that step because they would lose a whole, you know, kind of a, a good tranche of slice of, of benefits. They would lose Section 8 housing. They would lose their you know, disability check. They would get off their, you know, med Medicaid health insurance and so forth. So, so that step, that kind of is like a big gap between the, the, the jobs that can get you up and, and where you might be in a, in a kind of a secure uh, place. Yeah. So you, you've spoken about some of the anti-poverty, uh, and we're probably rounding out the hour here. Um, so I'd like to, you know, touch on any topics you'd want to, but I know you've written on some of the anti-poverty aspects in Manhattan. I think I saw a piece on, on some of the rent um, uh, kind of maze that, that exists in New York right now and is kind of being retrenched, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, if you, if you want a little bit of education for your onlookers on that, New York had a very deep, serious rent control system uh, that took hold after World War II. And it became even tighter in the early 70s, so that by the 90s, it had almost stamped out all new unsubsidized housing production in New York City. Uh, and, and there are years in the 70s and 80s when the number of unsubsidized housing units produced in all of New York City was under 5,000 new ones. And this is out of, on a base of 3 million. And then in the 90s, at the instance of the state Senate, which was controlled by Republicans at the time and were opposed to rent control, upstate Republicans put up a big fight and got some serious loosenings of the rent control system, particularly so that uh, most apartments on, on becoming vacant would leave the system mm -hmm. and could also be made to leave the system by a landlord investing enough in them. And if you invested in the apartment, you could get increases in the rents sufficient to get it out from under the rent control system. And there were, there were different loosenings like that. It's very complicated. It would take a long time to explain to your audience the details. But uh, after that occurred in the 90s, the, the production of uh, privately built, privately financed, non-subsidized housing in New York City grew substantially, like from 5,000 a year to something in the range of 25,000 in a low year and 50 or more in a high year, which still is low compared to other cities that don't have all the housing restrictions we have, but was much healthier and a, a terrific thing for the housing market. And of course the progressives were outraged about it. And um, uh, the, the, the state Senate continued to be controlled by Republicans until quite recently, but in, in 2018, the left wing of the Democratic Party finally achieved full control of both houses of the New York State Legislature and the governor at the same time, and they passed a new housing bill that basically reinstated all the restrictions. And you, you haven't seen, the housing production has declined. It hasn't gone all the way back down. Um, 
I don't claim to have a perfect crystal ball, but I think that the prognosis is terrible for housing in New York City, and they've just completely shot themselves in the foot. And, you know, it's going to take five or 10 years to see where this goes, and maybe some of it will get reversed if they um, if they realize what a disaster they've gotten themselves into. It's it's so it, the law was passed in 2019. I think, I think it took effect in 2020, and then of course we had the pandemic, so it's hard to draw much conclusion from the first mm-hmm. couple of years. But it'll be five to ten years. But I'm I'm going to suspect that the production of housing in the unsubsidized housing by private investors in New York City is in for a serious decline. It's going to be a terrible thing. It will drive, of course, the remaining housing then becomes more and more expensive. Yeah. And a lot of things were going to come off the market. I mean, you know, if you have a a, a unit and then you have to put it back on the market, there are probably going to be code um, aspects that you have to, you know, renew or rejuvenate, um, you know, the utility, the that exactly is a huge issue. And, and and so why why would you spend all that money to do it? You know that I I've been a minor uh, landlord uh, over the years here and there, um, but it, it's it's a responsibility and it's not instant quick money. You know a lot of people think they just put their money in real estate and there it goes. But insofar as you put these restrictions on, people will take their money and they'll they'll invest somewhere else or in something else. Um, you know at, at a time when I had some extra coin to invest. I um, invested out of state here. Uh, I invested in a property in Indiana and it did very, very well. Um, it's not to say it couldn't have done well here, but um, <clears throat> there are different places people can uh, put their cash. And if, if New York, you know, I think there's this, you know, again, getting back to the Steinberg cartoon, um, the New Yorker cartoon, famous one, you know, people have a, uh, I don't know if the right word is myopia, but they have a, a New York centrism to their vision and thought, they think that's the only place that people are ever going to want to be. And they love it so much. They can't imagine people will, will vote with their feet, uh, mm-hmm. vote with their wallets and, and vote with their, you know, building something else elsewhere. And um, my older brother um, was a, a political stalwart and uh, he was an assistant to the um, Manhattan borough president back, you know, in the Mesozoic, like I said, and then a writer and a reporter and all that kind of stuff. And he was shocked, shocked. And, you know, they, they wanted to do, at, at that time, I think it was the 70s, General Electric was moving to Fairfield County from New York City. Like, how could anyone do this? How could people leave Manhattan where all the headquarters of all the big businesses are to go someplace, you know, like Fairfield, they lose all the city employees. And it was a big stink about this. And he was writing about it and railing against it. And Manhattan wanted to do this and do that. And the borough president was going to, I don't know, but at the end of the day, they left. And so too, and a lot of people. Well, with a lot of others. And people, people put their headquarters. So you do this kind of thing. It's short-sighted. You know, it's basically, you know, you're tethering the 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 goose that lays the golden egg, and then the goose says, you know what, a goose hits menopause or decides to do something else. It's just not going to work out. Um, anyway, so there there have been several uh, articles recently trying to quantify how many apartments in New York City are being held off the market right now because the tenants have moved out and the apartment needs to be brought up to code and and the rent law pro, precludes the landlord from raising the rent yeah. to cover the cost of improvements yeah. so the landlords just leave them sitting there and there are numbers out there and this 
this has only again been in effect for a little over two years and the uh, the numbers that are out there are between 50 and 100,000 apartments in this category being held off the market now I, I have no ability to double check those numbers myself mm -hmm. but the, and, and this by the way is out of a universe of around three to 3.3 something like that million housing units in New York City. Yeah, so a significant amount, so like 3% yes. or something. So, you know, there's an old Soviet joke, uh, bitter joke, you know, they, they, they pretend to pay us, we pretend to work. Right. And and that the same is going to apply to landlords. You know, you, you just, you, if you think you can just get away nominally, so forth, they're going to do less of it. You know, people, people are funny things. It's not that money's important, but the things you can get with money are important. And if you, are going to put a certain amount of work you need to get those things and if you can't get those things one place you're going to hunt someplace else well right you could you, you don't have to invest your money in fixing up this apartment if you have enough money to fix up this apartment you could but if if the rent you're going to get is not going to change by that investment you can invest in a building in indiana or you can invest in bitcoin or you can invest yeah, no it's a lot of other things out there a lot so, of things um I think we're going to maybe close this up. Would you like any last words? Uh, yes. Push back against groupthink, people. <laughs> and where can people find you? Okay. I have a, a blog called The Manhattan Contrarian. Uh, and it's manhattancontrarian.com. It's a few letters to type, but you can put it in your bookmarks. Or you can subscribe to it also. The um, To subscribe you just go to the site once and you'll find over on the right-hand side a box that says subscribe and you type in your email address and then you will get an email from me every time there's a new post. There is no charge, unlike other people who are trying to make money off their blog. I uh, am not. So I, my blog generates no revenue. There's no uh, subscription fee or ads and it's just for the enjoyment of the readers. Yeah, well, I have to say I have gotten enjoyment from it. And, and that's, uh, so I'm thankful I know how to read. Uh, <laughs> I learned some time ago and I still remember how to do it. So it's been awesome. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And I, I've enjoyed our conversation. Uh, I, I end all of our, uh, all of my talks with a, a shameless self-promotion. Uh, my non-group think is, is this uh, book here, uh, Overturning Zika, uh, The Pandemic That Never Was. Um, it, uh, now it's turning an ancient memory because it was 2015, 2016, Brazil, uh, where Zika microcephaly uh, was a, a cause of panic. And, and the predictions uh, were such that there would be uh, 1 million worldwide extra babies with microcephaly. And if you are genuinely with microcephaly as a, as a child, a baby, you have you know, pretty much zero capability of making your way in the world on your own uh, intellectually and so forth. So it's a, it's a dire Diagnosis. I don't make light of it at all, but it's you know as a diagnosis, it's been around humans for long, long periods of time. Um, and the question was whether this new bug nobody had ever heard of, uh, virus Zika, transmitted by mosquito, was causing it. And and everyone assumed that it, it it did, and everyone still assumes that. And there's pretty much a billion dollar research industry still circulating around this, although we've been you know somewhat overshadowed by COVID. Um, but anyway, it never recurred after that year, even in Brazil, nothing, crickets. And nobody's retracted, reformulated, um, or deduced any reason why that is. There are a lot of, you know, comical ones, um, and they're all in my book. Uh, so 
for those of you watching this, um, please give it a, 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 a try on Amazon.com. It's coming out in Brazil and Portuguese um, by a major publisher uh, shortly, and I'll give a separate announcement when that occurs. Anyway, uh, sorry about that. Um, I uh, uh, look forward to talking with you and meeting you again. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye.